This is Prof. CJ, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar, warrior, and renaissance man for the new dark age, launching another salvo in the ongoing intellectual jihad of liberation that is the Dangerous History Podcast. This is episode 55 of the DHP entitled Save Yourself, and I'm glad to finally be recording this episode. I've had the idea, had my notes put together, had it burning a hole in my brain for days now, and just one thing after another kept popping up to get in the way of me recording it, so glad to finally be able to do it. In this episode, I'm going to argue that history shows that people who, whether individually or as parts of various types of groups, attempt to save themselves while they may not be guaranteed success, are more likely to achieve it than those who aren't willing to recognize the reality that no one is going to save you and that you have to grit your teeth and do what needs to be done. Do whatever is most likely to quote unquote save you, whatever that might mean in your particular circumstances with your particular problems. So the first historical case I'm going to look at, and by the way, these are just ones that came to mind when I was putting together notes for this episode. There may very well be better examples of this phenomenon throughout history that I didn't even think of or that I might have thought of uh, given more time. So feel free to chime in uh, in the show notes for this episode. But the first example I'm going to talk about is the case of the Greek soldier, mercenary, and historian Xenophon and his group of Greek mercenaries known as the Ten Thousand. Xenophon, by the way, was a a student of Socrates, and Xenophon was part of a group of Greek mercenaries known as the Ten Thousand, who were hired in 401 BC by the Persian prince Cyrus the Younger to fight against his brother Artaxerxes II in order to try and steal the Persian throne away from him. Now, most of these Greeks were out-of-work veterans of the Peloponnesian War, which had only recently ended. So these uh, Ten Thousand went to work for Cyrus the Younger and performed very well at the Battle of Canaxa near Babylon in the Middle East. They suffered only one casualty, supposedly, in that battle among their ranks. The battle itself ended basically in a draw, but Cyrus was killed when he rashly rode ahead in an attempt to kill his brother, but he was himself killed by his brother's troops. So it ended up being a strategic win for Artaxerxes because now his brother, who was trying to take the throne from him, is food for worms. Now, after the battle, Cyrus's Persian forces all kind of dissipated and went home, leaving the 10,000, these Greek mercenaries, by themselves stranded more than a thousand miles from home. And this is a thousand miles from home in the day where you could only go as fast as a, um, you know, horse-drawn vehicle or on foot. At first, the 10,000 tried to hire themselves to the local Persian satrap or governor, whose name was Tisaphernes. But Tisaphernes apparently didn't trust them and didn't want to hire them. But he also had the problem of he couldn't subdue these men by outright force in battle. He lacked any troops who could defeat these very well-trained and disciplined heavy infantry in an open pitch battle. So instead, he decided to use guile. And what Tisaphernes did was he invited the Greek officers to a feast and then had them arrested and ultimately decapitated. After that, the remnants of the 10,000 realized they had no choice but to save themselves. So they elected new officers to lead them, among whom was Xenophon, and they made the long journey back to Greece, having to fight and march their way from Babylon to the Black Sea with minimal supplies, almost no horses, and in you know hostile country and oftentimes very harsh and rugged terrain. Throughout the whole journey, they ran their outfit in a very democratic fashion. By the way, contrary to those who think that only very authoritarian, top-down, hierarchical-type 
organizations can be militarily effective. As the historian Victor Davis Hanson eloquently sums it up, quote, Though surrounded by thousands of enemies, their original generals captured and beheaded, forced to traverse through the contested lands of more than 20 different peoples, caught in snowdrifts, high mountain passes, and waterless steppes, suffering frostbite, malnutrition, and frequent sickness, as well as fighting various tribesmen, the Greeks reached the safety of the Black Sea largely intact, less than a year and a half after leaving home. They had routed every hostile Asian force in their way. Five out of six made it out alive, the majority of the dead lost not in battle, but in the high snows of Armenia, end quote. In other words, when they found themselves in this horrible situation, the men of the 10,000 didn't wait for someone to save them. The Greek officers who had tried to basically hire them themselves to Tisaphrenes, in other words, to kind of get somebody to help save them, these guys had been killed. And when that happened, the rest of the remaining 10,000 realized they had to save themselves, and they did. And of course, history is full of men who found themselves in similar situations to that of the 10,000, who didn't make the effort to save themselves and ended up either enslaved or annihilated. Now, the next historical example I want to make of someone saving themselves is that of Frederick Douglass, the famous abolitionist activist who was himself born into slavery. While he was still a slave as a very young man, he managed, with the help of some white people who were technically breaking the law by doing this, to learn how to read. And then once he knew how to read, he taught some of his fellow slaves how to read as well. By the way, one of his favorite sayings later on in life was something to the effect of knowledge is the pathway from slavery to freedom. While Douglas was in his late teens, um, he you know, had apparently a very independent sort of spirit that, that uh, masters did not like in their slaves. And so his owner sent him to work for a poor white farmer who had a reputation for breaking slaves psychologically. And this farmer used whippings repeatedly on young Frederick Douglass until apparently at one point Douglass fought back with a lot of success. And after that, the man never beat him again. So right there, you see this indomitable spirit. Here's this guy who is a very young man, a slave, and he still is willing to stand up for himself and um, has some partial success by doing that. But of course, he does even more to save himself than just standing up to one abusive, um, you know, boss. He kept repeatedly trying to escape. And after several unsuccessful escape attempts, he was finally successful in escaping to free soil in 1838 at the age of 20. And as he put it in his own words, quote, I prayed for 20 years, but received no answer until I prayed with my legs, end quote. In other words, young 20-year-old Frederick Douglass saved himself. He later became a very successful public speaker and writer and was the most prominent member of the abolitionist movement who had personally been a slave. In fact, many white abolitionists, um, some of whom still had what we would consider today quite racist attitudes towards blacks, they might be against slavery, but that doesn't mean they all necessarily considered the, the black man the equal of the white man. And many white abolitionists actually had trouble believing that a man so articulate and literate as Frederick Douglass had, not only was he black, but he had actually been born a slave. They, Many of them just just couldn't believe it. And after the Civil War, once slavery was over, he did continue as an activist for black rights and black education and so on. He took matters into his own hands. When he freed himself, it was 27 years before the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States. 
Frederick Douglass did not wait around for someone else to set him free. Had he done so, he would have, assuming he hadn't eventually been killed for insubordination, he would have waited uh, 27 years more as a slave. Instead, he decided to save himself and got his freedom 27 years before the rest of the slaves in the slave states did. And keep in mind, too, he certainly worked hard to try and help free others, but he couldn't have done much to help them if he had just waited around for someone else to hand him his freedom instead of doing what it took and taking the risks to get it for himself. By the way, I won't get into this story in as much detail, but the same can be said of the famous uh, Underground Railroad conductor Harriet Tubman, who was also born into slavery escaped and later, in in her case, very directly uh, helped many others to do the same. But again, she freed herself first and she couldn't have helped anyone else if she hadn't first saved herself, grabbed her own freedom. By the way, Harriet Tubman admitted she could have helped free even more if they'd only understood their true position and been willing to help free themselves. Um, She supposedly said, quote, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves, end quote. So I think one of the morals of the story, besides the general idea of saving yourself in the case of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, is the corollary of you may or may not be able to save others in your life, but you damn sure aren't going to save anyone unless you save yourself first. So we talked about one relatively modest sized group of Roughly 10,000 by the time they, they made their march home, there were less than that, uh, Greek mercenaries. And we talked about some individuals saving themselves. Now I want to talk about an entire country essentially saving themselves, even though, of course, many had to die in the process. Um, not a large country, but nonetheless an entire country, and that is the scrappy little Scandinavian country known as Finland. I want to talk about the Soviet Union's wars against Finland during World War II, which is one of the more forgotten aspects of World War II that very few people know much, if anything, about. And the wars between Finland and the Soviet Union were kind of in two phases. There was the so-called Winter War, which took place over a number of months during the winter from 1939 into 1940. And then there was a, a, uh, you know, peace after that. And then in 1941, the war renewed and lasted until 1944. Now, this this is truly a case of a, a David versus a Goliath. Finland's population at the start of these wars was less than 4 million people. By the way, if you don't know, that's less than a heck of a lot of United States states today. And to put it in perspective, the Soviet unions at the time of the start of these wars was over 160 million. You know, there were multiple cities in the Soviet Union that had more citizens than the entire country of Finland. But Finland put up a hell of a scrap in the Winter War, the, the first war, the Finns lost about 25,000 dead, but they inflicted over five times that many kills against Soviet attackers. By the way, just as a side note, this is the war that made Simo Hayek, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, I'm sure, um, the number one sniper of all time, I believe, in like all of modern war history. He killed well over 500 Soviet soldiers, by the way, with an iron-sighted bolt-action rifle, the Finnish uh, version of the Mosin-Nagant. And he did it all on his country's own soil 
defending like literally his homeland from foreign invasion. Uh, unlike certain other snipers we could potentially name. We'll just leave it at that. Now, in the second phase of these wars between Finland and the Soviet Union, known as the Continuation War, um, which lasted a lot longer, the Finns lost about 63,000 dead. But once again, they inflicted many times worse uh, casualties on the Soviet attackers, over four times as many. During the Continuation War, the Soviet government actually, for a while, was demanding unconditional surrender. But the Finns put up such a tough fight that the Soviets eventually dropped that demand. See, what had happened was at the beginning of these wars, um, the Soviet Union demanded certain territories from Finland. And um, ultimately, the, the Finnish government decided, no, they weren't going to um, give in on anything. And so then the Soviet Union claimed some sort of, oh, this is, this is defense. We're paranoid that Finland's threatening us little tiny country of you know four million people and so they ended up invading finland in both the winter war and the continuation war now finland did end up as a result of these wars ceding some territory and even paying some reparations but at the end of these wars they still retained their independence as a country and after the end of the continuation war they were never again attacked by the ussr and overall, their history from that point on, basically since uh, World War II, while, you know, I'm not going to argue that Finland is some kind of a perfect utopia or everything's great there and all that, but um, the history of Finland from World War II onward has overall been much better than that of all those countries in Eastern Europe that ended up under the boot of the Soviets one way or another. Now, Finland tried to get as much help from other countries as they could, but they received relatively little that was tangible. The League of Nations, which existed at the time, the forerunner of the United Nations, expelled the Soviet Union during the Winter War, but that was, you know, largely a symbolic gesture that didn't really do anything to blow up any Russian tanks. And uh, small numbers of Swedish volunteers actually went and fought for Finland in both wars, but these were, I think, you know, maybe a thousand or a couple thousand, something like that. Not, not enough to really tip the tide of war. And uh, during the continuation war, Finland actually received a little bit of assistance from Germany. But in the case of both the Winter War and the Continuation War, little Finland itself by far bore the brunt of standing up to the Soviet Union. Interestingly, while countries like Britain and the United States had at least rhetorically supported Finland during the Winter War... Um, during the Continuation War, of course, the U.S. and British governments were allied to Uncle Joseph Stalin. So um, they actually turned against Finland and kind of treated Finland like an enemy during the Continuation War. But nonetheless, while it did pay a price in terms of life and even some territory and other things, ultimately Finland did successfully defend itself as a country and prevent itself from being put totally under the boot of the Soviet Leviathan. By contrast, you could look at a country like Poland, which was much more expectant of foreign help at the start of World War II, especially they um, had all kinds of hopes of British and French help to defend them against uh, outside invasion. But for various reasons, Poland was not properly prepared to defend itself when it ultimately was attacked first by the, by the Germans in the West and shortly after by the Soviets in the East. And Poland, as you know, anyone with any familiarity with the start of World War II knows, was quickly crushed um, by Germany in the West and the Soviets in the East. 
And when the Soviets began the Winter War against Finland, they had just finished mopping up eastern Poland, and they believed that Finland would be just as much of a pushover as uh, eastern Poland had been. It was an even smaller country than Poland, and you know they had been able to. The Red Army had conquered eastern Poland in a matter of weeks, suffering fewer than a hundred casualties in the process of doing so. Of course, they'd also um, you know been helped by the fact that Germany had already invaded western Poland. But even so. So you have, you know, Poland falling in a matter of weeks. Little Finland puts up a scrappy fight for months. And then in the second phase of the war, uh, years against the Soviets and fights them virtually to a draw for practical purposes. Other countries you could compare to Finland in terms of how they approached the Soviet threat and how they fared uh, would be the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. They um, allowed Russian military occupation in their territories without any serious uh, military resistance in June 1940, early in World War II. But within just two months of, of sending you know, troops into the Baltic states in 1940, the USSR took over all three of the Baltic states entirely and officially incorporated them into the USSR, and that was it. As a result of not putting up any serious resistance to Soviet takeover, the three Baltic states suffered horribly under the Soviet Union for the next 51 years. While Finland, you know, definitely suffered um, having to fight against the Soviet Union, and um, certainly they had, you know, didn't have a perfect experience after World War II, nonetheless, what happened in Finland was far preferable to what happened in Latvia, Estonia, or Lithuania. By the way, it's true that at the end of their wars with the Soviet Union, the Finnish government actually made concessions to the Soviets that were technically greater than the concessions that the Soviets had demanded at the start of the war. But considering the fate of Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, it seems likely, at least to me, that if the Finns hadn't put up such a scrappy fight, they might have ended up being completely taken over and subsumed into the Soviet Union. And in fact, I believe some Soviet documents that were secret at the time, but now, you know, have, have seen the light of day, indicate that this was the intent of at least some people within the Soviet leadership initially was to, to just say to Finland, oh, we just want a little territory here and there from you and that's it. But the goal long term was ultimately to take over the entire country. In other words, the Soviet government said they just wanted an inch, but they really wanted a mile. The Finns fought and fought well and fought hard, and the Soviets ended up settling for two inches, which was more than they'd officially demanded, but actually, in reality, was much less than they'd originally intended to take. Unlike the Baltic states, Finland understood the nature of the Soviet threat and took at least, you know, some practical preparations and was able to put up a decent resistance. And unlike Poland, while Finland certainly was happy to get whatever help it could from the outside world, um, they weren't, you know, entirely dependent upon the kindness of strangers, so to speak. And so, in other words, they, as a little country, saved themselves, saved themselves from being conquered into the Soviet Union. And one more sort of historical example I'll mention in connection to this concept is all the Jews who escaped the Holocaust, either by, by evasion, by getting out of the way of it, by leaving that part of the world before things got to where they couldn't leave, or in a few cases at least, by successfully fighting. Now, there were thousands and thousands of Jews who left when they still could, including some that 
have famous names like Ludwig von Mises or even more famous names like Albert Einstein. But there were plenty of others, not nearly as famous, who managed to get out. People who saw the direction things were going and said, all right, I may not be able to save all the Jews in Europe, but I can at least save myself and my immediate family and get the hell out. By the way, it is true that more Jews could have escaped if the supposedly good guy nations like Britain and the United States had been willing to accept them as, you know, refugees. But there are so many cases of Jewish refugees fleeing the Nazis, you know, before the Holocaust really got into full swing and uh, British or American, as the case might be, authorities would, you know, shut them out, turn them away, whatever. But still plenty were able to save themselves. And those who sat around and waited to see how things went and didn't take proper precautions, sadly, many of them ended up suffering horrible fates, as we all know. Now, some Jews did fight back. Uh, sadly, you know, not enough to stop what happened, but um, some were able to fight back successfully in their local area. Some were not. But certainly your odds of escaping the camps were much better if you resisted than if you didn't resist at all. Probably the most famous examples of some who successfully fought back and ultimately escaped the fate of the death camps were the so-called Bielski partisans in Belarus who are depicted in the book and the movie Defiance, starring Daniel Craig, I think before he was James Bond. And I haven't read the book. I've heard that the book it actually isn't very good. Um, but I thought the movie was pretty good. You know, not the greatest movie ever, but it was pretty good. And these, these, uh, these Jews in Belarus, they just successfully used a combination of evasion kind of out, out in the woods uh, plus guerrilla warfare. And, you know, they um, ended up not, not, going to, not going to the camps that you don't want to go to. Let's put it that way. So those are just some historical examples that came to my mind when I thought of this concept, this idea of you've got to save yourself when there's, you know, danger or a bad situation or anything like that. Um, first and foremost, you've got to save yourself. Number one, because you can't ultimately at the end of the day really count on anybody else to save you. And number two, you can't help anyone else until you help yourself save yourself first. But one more point I want to make is that when deciding how to save yourself, whatever that might mean in your situation. When deciding how to save yourself, you have to be smart, you have to be strategic, you have to be clever, you have to be prudent. Doing things to save yourself that are suicidal, whether suicidal in the sense of literal or, or figurative, is not a good idea in most cases, unless you're deliberately pursuing a martyrdom tactic in some way, which might occasionally be strategically sensible, but actually rarely is so. You have to be realistic. You have to acknowledge the limitations of reality. Finland, I'm sure, would have preferred to concede absolutely nothing to the USSR, but its leaders were realistic enough to accede to a compromise after they'd um, inflicted a lot of casualties on the Russians and put up a good resistance. In the case of slaves such as Frederick Douglass and um, Harriet Tubman, who escaped from slavery, those who escaped at least had a chance of success because they chose a more prudent method of saving themselves, voting with their feet, getting out, evasion. But there were other slaves who resisted, who chose tactics that were just not smart or prudent given the situation. And here I'm talking about all those slaves who violently revolted or staged uprisings. They inevitably lost. 
they inevitably lost and, you know, were all killed and, and accomplished for practical purposes, nothing. Now, they certainly had the moral and kind of natural law right to fight for their freedom. I think anyone has the right to use whatever means necessary to protect themselves and their freedom and their natural rights when they're under assault. But the practical reality was that in the antebellum South, no slave rebellion could be successful against the might of all the different forces that could be brought to bear in that situation. You know, even if you had initially local success in one area against kind of their little local defense forces, if you're a slave, you know, uprising, um, sooner or later, though, they're going to call in state militia. And if they have to federal troops, you know, uh, in the antebellum South, ultimately, um, the longer a slave rebellion um, went, the more force was ultimately brought in to crush it. And so, again, while a slave, certainly I would agree, has the moral right to violently revolt, to try to get their freedom, um, you know, practical reality, tactical reality of the matter is it essentially is suicidal in the antebellum South to launch a slave uprising. Whereas if you do what Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman did and you escape, you actually have a chance of at least saving yourself. And then in different ways, as Frederick Douglass did as an activist or Harriet Tubman did as an underground railroad conductor, you can try to do what you can to save others once you've saved yourself first. But don't lose hope, don't lose heart, because keep in mind that actually many times the underdog actually has lots of real significant advantages, but which might not be obvious at first glance. And a lot of times the side that looks like it has all the obvious advantages actually has some severe disadvantages as well. And here I'll just refer you to, if you have not read it already, the book David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell, who's a very interesting author, always writes books that are thought-provoking and, and well-researched, and he's a good writer too. Um, David and Goliath has lots of examples of this. Um, starting with the literal biblical story of David and Goliath. You know, everybody looks at David and Goliath and says, wow, it's a miracle that David won. But in reality, even setting aside all of the, you know, theological and supernatural arguments of what was going on, just looking at the confrontation itself in a vacuum, uh, it's not so clear if you really understand ancient warfare that um, Goliath was, you know, favored to win. Even setting aside any divine intervention that may or may not have happened, the reality is that David was actually favored to win if he fought in his customary way uh, at a distance with a sling. I think it was in uh, Gladwell's book where he points out that people have studied ancient uh, slings and said that a slinger who knew what he was doing not only could be accurate at a surprising distance, but that um, the launching a projectile with a sling of back then, if you do it properly, produces kinetic energy that's comparable to many high caliber modern pistols. So the reality is, as long as David chose, as he did, to fight in a way that plays to his advantages and not to Goliath's advantages, he's actually the clear favorite to win, the odds on favorite. So I think the lesson here is that if in the process of saving yourself, again, whatever that might mean to you in your life or whatever challenges you're facing or whatever a bad or potentially bad situations you might find yourself in, um, if you ever do have to somehow fight, either literally or just metaphorically, some sort of opponent in order to save yourself, you don't want to fight your opponent in a fashion that plays to his strengths. In other words, if you're David, 
the last thing you want to do is get into a close quarters, hand-to-hand fight with Goliath. That's a good way to commit suicide. Instead, fight him in a way he's not good at, but you are, which is exactly what David did. And you can see a similar phenomenon with the Greeks of the 10,000. They didn't try to acquire bows and chariots and try to fight the Persian army in the Persian fashion. Instead, they hung together and did what they were good at. They fought as heavy infantry as hoplites in a phalanx formation, and their opponents at the time always had horrible trouble dealing with that style of fighting. And as long as they stayed disciplined and stayed together and so on, they'd be okay. And most of them were. As Hansen pointed out, most of the casualties the 10,000 suffered were due to snow, not to uh, their enemies on the battlefield. Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, each in their own way, fought against slavery, but they didn't do it by trying to take on the southern state militias and the United States military. And the Finns, um, and those are wars, by the way, the wars between the Finns and the, and the Soviet Union, uh, very interesting wars that I, I'm honestly considering down the line somewhere doing in-depth uh, episodes just on that and, and really looking at how the war, you know, the tactics and everything like that. But long story short, when the Finns fought the Russians in those wars during World War II, they didn't fight the Russians using massed formations, frontal charges, and heavy tanks, which, you know, they didn't have much of anyway. But even if they did, I don't know if they would have done that, because massed formations, frontal charges, heavy tanks, all that stuff, that's the Russian way of fighting. And, um, you know, if you fight the Russians in the Russian way, they're probably going to be good at that. Instead, what the Finns did when they fought the Russians was they primarily used tactics of guerrilla warfare, sniping, Molotov cocktails, all that sort of stuff, which the Russians had a much harder time beating and which ultimately caused them to have to um, seek, you know, a negotiated settlement to the end of their war with the Finns. Anyway, I'm sure you and I, for that matter, can come up with other examples of people and groups successfully saving themselves throughout history and counterexamples of people and groups who are either unwilling and or unable to do so, who suffer one type or another of, uh, for you know, lack of a better term, a negative outcome. While trying to save yourself doesn't guarantee success, it certainly makes the odds more likely than if you either do nothing or rely on someone else to save you. The historical examples I presented here just happened to be some of the first that came to mind when I started to put together my plan for this episode. I think they're pretty good, but I don't think at all that they're the only ones, and they might not even be the best. They're just the ones that came to my mind when I started thinking along these lines. I know most of you listening will probably never find yourself in situations as dire as those faced by the groups and individuals I talked about in this episode. Nonetheless, I think these historical examples still illustrate important principles that we can all learn from and use in our daily lives. Stop waiting around for someone to quote-unquote save you, whatever that phrase might mean to you and your situation. Certainly, be willing to accept appropriate help, especially if that help is offered without any sort of unacceptable strings or conditions. Be willing and grateful for help from others. But don't wait for it, and don't count on it, and don't assume it's going to be there. Don't wait for the powers that be to change things, to make them more amenable to you and your situation, because it probably isn't going to happen anyway. Instead, take a long look in the mirror and realize that absolutely no one is ever going to be as willing or as able to help you 
as you yourself. By the way, just a side note, the main Irish nationalist party in Irish history is called Sinn Féin. Many people know that. Not as many people know what that term actually translates uh, from, uh, from the Gaelic to English. Sinn Féin translates as something to the effect of we ourselves or ourselves alone. No one will ever be as willing and able to save you as you yourself. If you're already on a path of saving yourself, again, whatever that might mean in your life and your circumstances and the obstacles you face, if you're already on that sort of a path, I hope my words have offered encouragement and reinforcement and so on. And if you're not already on such a path, I hope that I've given you some food for thought that will help inspire you to make the decision to grit your teeth, roll up your sleeves, and in a clever and strategic way, that's not just going to be stupidly suicidal. Save yourself. Save yourself. As always, if you have any comments about this particular episode, please feel free to leave them in the comment section for this episode at the website profcj.org. Also, you can email me with questions, comments, feedback, and so on at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can connect with the show, follow things on Facebook and Twitter. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, those sorts of places. Remember, there are many different ways you can help out the show. One is to simply do what you can to spread the word about this show if you like it. Try and spread the word about it to people you think might appreciate it. Consider leaving a review in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher in order to encourage others to give the show a listen. By the way, I've got a decent amount of reviews on iTunes, but none so far on Stitcher. So please consider uh, leaving a review or a rating on Stitcher if you get this show via Stitcher. You can also help the show financially either by donating directly uh, profcj.org slash donate. There you'll see um, a PayPal donate button as well as a Bitcoin address if you want to throw some Bitcoinage my way. You can also help the show out a little bit financially by purchasing items from amazon.com by first going through the links found on my website. By the way, I just want to mention also the lrn.fm campaign to get their uh, programming back on satellite um, available to Africa is still going on. So consider checking that out. I will put a link to that campaign in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. And in addition, today, urging you to save yourself whatever that means to you and your circumstances and whatever problems or obstacles or opponents you might be facing. Thank you.